Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast for the international affairs, foreign policy, global development communities, and anyone interested in a deeper understanding of the world today. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg, editor of UN Dispatch. Enjoy the show. The Okavango River is a major river system in southwest Africa. It begins in Angola, passes through Namibia, and ends in a vast delta in Botswana. This river system and its ecological and social impact is the subject of a breathtaking new podcast called Guardians of the River. And today, I am going to play for you the first episode of this podcast. Guardians of the River is a beautifully produced audio experience that tells the story of the Okavango water system and those who are seeking to protect it. It won the Best Narrative Nonfiction Podcast Award at the Tribeca Film Festival, and after listening to this pilot episode, I think you'll understand why. It really is an audio documentary like nothing else I've ever heard, and it's on a topic that I think many listeners of this podcast will find interesting, so I am pleased to share it with you today. Guardians of the River is produced by the House of Pod, Wild Bird Trust, and National Geographic. It's available wherever you find podcasts, and I'll post a link to the show in the show notes of this episode. Now enjoy episode one of Guardians of the River. It's a place of life, death, and mystery. And it's called the Okavango Delta. The life is the water. And the water knows no borders. It twists and turns through Angola and Namibia until it converges in Botswana, spreading into one mighty freshwater delta called the Okavango. The delta is the halfway point of the Okavango and Zambezi basins, and it is the beating heart of water for the inhabitants of six countries in southern Africa half of the world's elephants. Millions of birds. And thousands of hippos. But sometimes, the water doesn't fill the delta. And no one really knows why. For centuries, during the driest parts of the year, seasonal floods have interrupted the Kalahari Desert, the largest continuous stretch of sand on the planet. Without the water, the desert takes over. The reeds choke the channels, and the animals and the people wander inward, deeper and deeper, searching. Sand becomes layered with trash and animal corpses. That is a death. And as for the mystery, I can't even pretend that there is just one. Where does the water come from? What happens to it? 
Who exactly relies on it? And what if all of a sudden it stopped? Over the last decade, people around the Delta have started asking these questions more frequently. And so one man decided he would go find the answers. And while on his mission, he uttered a phrase that has become both a gift and a curse. To this day, it is broadcast to millions of people across the world. I will do everything in my power to protect this place. This is Dr. Steve Boyce who is also my boss. Steve is a South African zoologist whose family has lived in the Cape for over 200 years. I'll play it again. I'll do everything in my power to protect this place. He says it quickly, but it's a loaded statement. And with it, Steve has tied the fate of the Okavango water system to his own, and in some ways to mine. I'll tell you more about Steve in a minute. First, let me introduce myself. My name is Kerlen Costa. I'm an Angolan biologist. I started working with Steve in this region in 2016. First, as a volunteer, helping to collect wildlife data in eastern Angola, where the waters of the Delta start. Over time, I convinced Steve to bring me onto his team as a camera trapper. This bag that I left here with camera traps. Camera trapping involves setting up motion-activated cameras to take photos of the animals wandering around the forest, the ones we cannot always see in the light of day. Angola has spent much of the last 40 years either fighting a war or recovering from it, not conducting scientific surveys. So we have decades of research to catch up on, including knowing what animals live here. But I create um, routes that go along certain villages. So if I get to a village... I pick up a local hunter from that village so that he feels, in a way, involved and empowered. And that village now feels the responsibility to take care of those cameras. So if I go to... The more time I spent in these villages, the more I realized that science is just one piece in solving the mysteries of this region. Many of the clues live in the stories told by local people, in legend, myth, Magic. One day, I was placing these cameras in a dense forest when I saw an indigenous hunter watching me work. The hunter was athletic, shredded with thick muscles. His hands were calloused. His eyes were the kind that looked straight into your soul. He had a bow and arrow strapped to his back. I motioned him to sit with me on the spongy forest floor. The hunter shared his name. Sarabeka, and then cautioned me, this is not the place for me to tell you stories. I first need to absorb you. Then I will share things, or not. I followed the hunter to his village, and we sat around a huge fire. I remember having this sensation that the stars and the moon were sitting with us because they were so close. We don't speak the same language. I grew up in Luanda, Angola's capital where we were raised with Portuguese. Sarabeka spoke to me in Luchaz, an older language of Angola. There were long silences. 
And then finally, he said, I thought you were a chindele. This means a foreigner or a westerner. He went on. Although you look different, I can feel that you are somehow part of us. I think I can share some things with you. In the morning, Sir Rebecca and I walked deeper and deeper into the forest. There was no light, no paved roads. Landmines from Angola's 40 years of war were buried in the sand around us. Rusting tanks along the route, another reminder of the conflict, were the closest thing to a road sign. And then, there was a clearing. And right in the middle of it, a stretch of water so clear and calm, it had no color. It mirrored everything below it and around it. It was a lake, and it was suspended atop the sand, almost like it should disappear any minute. It felt like it was all held together by magic. And it is. Because this is one of the more than 20 source lakes in eastern Angola. Each one feeds a river flowing across southern Africa. Some of them end up in the Okavango Delta, and some flow into Victoria Falls. These lakes are quite possibly some of the most important bodies of fresh water on this part of the continent. And yet, so few people know they exist. While the local community obviously has spent time in this place, I mean, Sarabeka is the one who brought me here, there is not a single structure or boat near the lake shores. It looks untouched, pristine, a conservationist stream. And it is this way for one big reason. Mukisi. Staring down at the lake, Sarabeka told me the story of Mukisi in a whisper. Mukisi is a myth passed between generations of local people, coming to life over campfires and bedtime stories. It is a dragon that lives in the source lakes and terrorizes any person who comes close to its shores. Mukisi is a demon. It kills, it destroys. It strikes fear in the hearts of local people. But honestly, I think that we've overlooked something about Mukisi. Something that could hold an important clue to the secrets of this place and how we can protect it. This podcast is a story of the guardians of the water and their secrets. These guardians have a monumental task, trying to protect a remote, near-pristine environment facing threats from all sides. Threats like wildfires, drought, habitat destruction, industrial development, overhunting, and charcoal production, as well as generational wounds from a history of colonialism, war, and displacement of indigenous people. What have we done to each other in the name of wilderness? Is there any place left in the world we can save from ourselves? And if so, will this water system be it? You're listening to Guardians of the River. I'm your host, Kerlin Costa. And we're a podcast exploring how to protect some of the most remote and wild places on the planet. 
starting with the Okavango Delta and the Source Lakes. Steve, the zoologist from South Africa, become so entwined with the Okavango Delta? They listened to me going, <laughs> This is the sound of Steve when he's on expedition around 10 p.m. It is the um, cold, freezing cold buckets just before bed and midnight yoga. Just bah, cleanses you. Steve's story with the Delta began when he was a kid in the Cape, wearing binoculars like they were a pair of glasses. One day, he spotted a flash of green and gold in the trees. It was a Cape parrot. I thought parrots belonged on parrots' shoulders and in cages, not free-flying in Africa. And uh, that captivated me. Steve quickly found out that there were only 1,500 Cape parrots left in the wild. They were facing extinction. And he wanted to learn more. So, he studied hard and pursued degrees in forestry, conservation, ornithology and zoology. Within two and a half months of meeting the Myers parrot, I was doing a PhD on them. That's how fascinated I was by this bird. Eventually, he proposed a PhD on the Myers parrot, a green and grey cousin of the Cape parrot who lives in the Okavango Delta. He followed the parrot and fell in love with the place. I fell in love with the Delta because of the, the wildness, the sense of place, real wilderness. And at the age of... 2021, 20, when I first arrived there, uh, I had not experienced that yet. I come from a family obsessed with wild places and national parks, and our family wasn't wealthy, so we didn't fly into the Kruger National Park or these other places in South Africa and other countries. We drove there, and my first experience of the Delta, I flew in there. I stayed at a lodge. I'd never stayed in a lodge before. And I'd only ever camped, and I remember I didn't even get into the bed. I would lay on top of it. I, I didn't want to ruin it, but I, that night I, I lay in in absolute paradise. The sounds of the floodplains wrapped around me. I didn't sleep at all. Uh, it was lions calling. It was the wildest place I'd ever been. And uh, when I got back to South Africa, I just turned around, gave up on writing up my masters there, and I went straight to the Delta. It was uh, very clear to me. That's what I needed to do. While studying parrots, Steve sought out teachers and friends who could help him learn more about the Delta. One of those people was Koketsu Mukudi, otherwise known as Koki. And that's when I was at a crossroads of my life and I needed a change. And I was like, listen, I need to know more about this Okavanga Delta. It sounds like something that I need. Koki is a Botswana tourism manager from Gabron. She moved to the Delta around the same time as Steve. You'll get to know her much better during this series. But for now, I'll tell you that Koki and Steve met 19 years ago while working together at Vudum Tiki camp in the Okavango. This was a tourist lodge in one of the remotest parts of the Delta. I call him Stalky Steve because he walks like a bird, like his stalky legs. So he'll always be Stalky Steve to me. Steve and Koki managed the camp together. There were blue jobs and pink jobs. So if you were a girl, you were in the kitchen or doing the laundry or something. And if you were a boy, you did the guiding allocations and you did the maintenance stuff. And I was like, I'll tell you what I will not do. And... He was so sweet and he was just like, I'll do housekeeping. And he was a fantastic housekeeping manager. We had amazing times. We had an instant brotherly, sisterly connection beyond just colleagues. 
When Steve wasn't washing dishes or making beds, he was out exploring the remote islands in the Okavango Delta, first by foot and eventually using a traditional dugout wooden canoe known as a mokoro. A mokoro is more like a paddleboard than a boat. You can steer it by standing up and pushing it across shallow water using a specialized wooden pole called an kashi. Steve learned how to survive in the delta from the Waiye. They are indigenous river bushmen who are as comfortable poling a makoro across a waterway as they are walking on land. I was now 19 years working in the Okavango Delta. And for the longest time, that was all I cared about. If it sounds like Steve is steering a makoro now while he's talking, that's because he is. All I wanted to know was every single plant, tree, animal, bird, insect. That was uh, my obsession. In 2011, I was counting parrots every day. My life was very, very simple. And um, a natural filmmaker came. And he had been touring around the whole of Southern Africa, visited like 40-odd projects. He was looking for, his brief was to make videos for each of the projects, to promote them, and then find one person to bring back, to do something with, to create media with, to film or something. The filmmaker was named Neil Jelinas and he wanted to know what kind of story Steve would tell about the Okavango Delta, if he could. In that moment, Steve remembered a piece of advice he had received. A friend of mine who said, actually, Steve, just think bigger, think bigger. And so Steve pitched Neil something huge. Explore the sources, see where the water comes from and what's happening to it across three countries. Uh, this vast ecosystem protected in its entirety. Steve believed that if the world could see the Delta and follow its story, right from the start-up in Angola, that maybe he could better understand what was happening to the water. Where did it come from? Where was it going? And how could we protect its future? We signed a kind of contract on a, on a napkin late at night, drinking whiskey, where I promised to help him make his first feature film. And he promised to help me build the Okavango project, if you called it at the time. That was kind of the trigger for this massive change. I, I kind of was really happy sitting there in the mountains, quietly living this simple life. And um, now my life's not simple. One, two, three. Wait, wait, wait. I've spent the last six months looking at satellite imagery and trying to imagine what this place looks like. And this is nothing like what I expected. We were expecting a river, yeah, and we didn't find one. That's what Steve sounds like when his life is anything but simple. You all right? <clears throat> you are broken, physically. Mentally, the main thought is, I've made an incredible mistake. At a glance, the goal of the expedition seemed clear enough. Learn more about how the water flows from Angola to Botswana and count and identify the species that live in and around the delta. But in action, this plan felt like a mess. For one, the team had to travel through Quito Quanaval. This is the site of the largest tank battle in Africa since the Second World War. The fighting ended in 2002, but stark reminders of the war remain embedded in the landscape.
To this day, the area is strewn with landmines and unexploded bombs. Bullet holes pockmark buildings. Battle tanks remain stranded on the side of roads. And police review travel permits at checkpoints for any non-Angolan moving through the countryside. To pull off an expedition like this, Steve needed a parade of land cruisers filled with scientists and National Geographic filmmakers, all towing a dozen Mokoros. So instead of his usual wardrobe of muddy khakis, Steve quickly found himself in his nicest blazer. Palm sweating, he waited to make a case for the expedition to the local politicians. Their permission would make or break the expedition. We had opportunity uh, before the expedition to go and secure the support of the governor of Kwandukubangu, Hijinu Kanero. A very imposing person, very powerful, probably the third most powerful person in Angola at the time. And I went to his palace. He was in a kind of lavender safari suit, ivory cane, kind of stereotypical African leader with his entourage, all in black suits and dark glasses. It was, you know, very impressive. The whole palace that he was in smelt of jasmine. And I sat there and I spoke to him about my passion for the Okavango Delta. For 45 minutes, Steve explained what he planned to do. Explaining some of the science, some of the past work we had done, uh, the work with National Geographic, the plan to make a film and the film crews coming, all these things. And he uh, uh, put his hand up. He said, uh, and this is in Portuguese, uh, with a very deep voice. He's just like, stop, I have one very big problem with this project. And I was like, oh, God, here we go. And uh, he said he wanted National Geographic to announce the re-emergence of Angola. Angola had been locked up in four decades of armed conflict, uh, landmines, and it was stigmatized. The policies of the wartime government were highly isolationist. And he wanted to see an opening up. Uh, and, you know, National Geographic puts countries on maps, whether it's South Sudan as a new country or Angola. And he wanted that. What Steve proposed was considered impossible. He wanted to travel from the source of the Okavango, following rivers with Makoros, all the way to the Delta. They would cover 1,500 kilometers with a team recruited from Botswana, Angola, Namibia, South Africa and Zimbabwe. And all along the way, they would count and identify wildlife. He had thought there was no way the Angolan government would allow it. But the mission was approved. And now, it was time to assemble the team. Steve asked a lot of different people about an Angolan researcher that could join the project. And one of my university teachers thought I would be crazy enough. <laughs> this is my sister, Ajani. She was the only Angolan biologist on the first expedition. And she had her doubts. Hope is not something that most Angolans have. Everywhere throughout the world, we are seen as this super corrupt country where no good will happen to it. Our personalities, our culture, all comes back to the war itself. I did not believe in Angola, period. I didn't believe it was worth spending, you know, all of the effort and youth and money in Angola. I had no overview of how can I possibly be able to contribute and how I felt or not Angolan. It's the even feeling of Angolan. She wasn't sure if she believed in Angola, and she definitely did not know what to think of Steve. It's just white guy coming from this very developed, nice place, hoping to get an adventure. But she decided to go anyways. It was almost... 
a responsibility, the dual responsibility as an Angolan and, and as a scientist. Steve's next pick for his team was a river guide, someone he had known since his days running small research expeditions from Vudumtiki camp. My name is Tumaloto Wachastabusha. I live in the center of Okobang Delta. It's wonderful. The people call me Water. Water belongs to the Waiye tribe in Botswana. And his name comes from the story of his birth. His mother was walking between two villages when she went into labor. To deliver her baby, she found a small puddle of water to sit in. And so she named her new son Water, almost like a birthright. He is now one of the best Mokoro polars in the Delta. That's why Steve convinced him to join as a guide. I was very interested, and they said to me, he's going to go into, to Angola. And then I was thinking about, about this trip. Myself, I wanted to go into Angola. Water had watched the Delta flow less and less over the years. And like Steve and Ajani, he wanted to know where it came from and where it was going. These three, along with a handful of scientists, YA polars, and a film crew formed the final expedition team. The first real surprise of the expedition came right at the start. It is a doozy of a forest to see. See, this is it right there. Look, that's the floodplain. And I remember there was no um, road, there was no track, there was nothing. It was just cut marks and trees as we're going along through dense forest. We discover a minefield and get through it very slowly. And about eight hours later, we have that moment where the trees open uh, to the first clearing that we had found in that whole eight-hour drive. We'd just been deep inside this forest and um, it was a lake. The water was so crystal clear that we were looking straight through it and looking at the green bottom, all the algal gardens and everything below. It's like a little piece of Caribbean ocean in the middle of this giant vast forest, about half a mile across, surrounded by forest. And I completely exhaust myself and uh, go down to the lake for the proper first time, uh, quiet, and everything's quiet. And there, I touched the water, uh, I cried, because I just I was physically broken and mentally very, very vulnerable. And it was just, uh, this lake just seemed ancient and powerful. And then you learn about Mukisi and Mukisikisi in those lakes. You understand why people would have thought, uh, and maybe they still are, we, maybe we'll find them. Uh, there were these big serpent uh, mythical creatures in there because of the power and the sense of place. Steve and the team launched their Makoros onto the water and began pulling through cold mist. It parted like curtains, letting the boats pass. This was the perfect start. Too perfect. When they reached the end of the lake, the water changed. It became a small, narrow trickle. Enough to fill a bottle, but not enough to carry a boat loaded with hundreds of kilos of expedition gear. Good. Boop. Really? Alright. Nice. Steve and the team had to pull each fully loaded Mokoro using harnesses strapped to their shoulders for 14 days. I'm questioning everything in life at this point. I'm questioning the whole efficiency of the project. 
I'm questioning why didn't Steve come here before and check this out so we didn't have to endure through all of this. Steve almost wanted to call the whole thing off. But then... A lot of the time you're finding yourself knee-deep in what you think is the wet edge of the river. But I mean, as soon as we caught into it... This is peat. These are peat deposits. The team made their first discovery. Peat, a marshy layer of decaying plants and mud. And while satellite images can show the path of a river... Nothing but dragging boats across boggy land exposes the truths of the landscape. How else would they have learned about the existence of peat if they weren't standing waist-deep in it? These peat bogs hold as much as 25 times their own dry weight in water before slowly releasing it. We are literally walking on top of the sponge, holding the water that eventually floods the Okavango Delta. It's not known in tropical Africa. Uh, This is something that's new. It took 12 kilometers and two weeks until the team finally made it to open water. Even though Steve and his crew could now paddle a river, they faced more hardship. Fires. Smoke. It was suddenly everywhere. And it's burnt all the way down the channel, all the way south. Now it's close to camp. We're going to watch it burn as the wind has turned now. It's almost stopped and it's going to burn this way faster and faster to the edge of the water. Fires are a common occurrence in eastern Angola. Villagers use them to clear land for their crops and to hunt. But what Steve and the team saw felt out of control. Flames roared across the shores, forcing trees to crowd the riverbeds, which meant by day the team hacked at branches to open the channel. Yeah, nothing. Blockage, blockage, blockage there. Nothing, yeah. Just trees. Yes. Just the forest. Blockage. <laughs> Escaping the fires, trees are now growing into the river, choking it. And by night, they watched flames dance across the pit, turning into charred, dry sand. Steve's urgency to do something grew. Without forest, without peat deposits, we lose the water. It isn't stored somewhere, it's gone. Uneasy, but pressed to carry on, the crew continued past great stretches of forest, cleared for agricultural development and the river deepened and widened, enough to sustain larger forms of life. That morning we leave early and now we're seeing all the crocs, they're still out of the water. Big crocodiles. Steve and his crew were floating on the water. And uh, my brother behind me, he calls, uh, like, the reeds are moving, the reeds are moving. They couldn't see anything under or around them, but their senses screamed that something was there. And I call Quena, like it's a crocodile for the Waiyi guys. I can see a trail, but there's no sign of a croc. And I see this big swirl on the right. I call Kubu, hippo. Not a crocodile, a hippo. And not a curious hippo. A hippo is frightened and circling back to defend himself. 
and as I'm waving back, you look at me, like the, the water next to on the left just like lifts up like a big breath. It's about a meter and a half, you know, six, seven, eight foot of clear water. And its face appears there and it's the next thing. It's like, wow. Now you're like underwater. It's just bubbles everywhere. Splashing through the water, swimming for their lives, Steve and a crewmate who was also in the overturned Makoro knew the hippo was in the water with them. But they couldn't see where. Swim, 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 swim. They made it safe to shore, and the team retrieved the broken boat, punctured from the forceful bite of hippo tusks. We had a social media team that got tweeting out that this had happened, and I wanted Kirst, my wife, to um, hear from me before hearing from them. And uh, I'd walked like 200 yards away uh, with the satellite phone, and I was like phoning and phoning and phoning, and she eventually answers. And I just hear her voice, and it's just, I, it can collapse. And they start crying and shake. I couldn't talk to her. I couldn't tell her what was going on. Like you really realized what we were doing. This hippo attack changed Steve. I never fall in the water, never swim, never put soap in the water, nothing, nothing. I don't touch the water. This is why instead of swimming in the river like many others do, Steve takes his baths with buckets of cold water. His midnight yoga. But this respect doesn't exactly come from fear. Like I call the hippos, the guardians of these rivers, of these systems, because they connect us to the water, makes us focus every second on the water. Connection might be the most important thing for Steve, linking the start of the water, the source lakes, with the delta, joining together people from all countries of the water system on one expedition, binding the history of a place with the potential of its future. For him and the team, the thing that does this perhaps most profoundly are elephants. This land was so famous because of its elephants and they were just as important as the diamonds in the country. That's gone. Over 100,000 elephants were completely eliminated. That piece of the puzzle that connected Angola to the rest of the world is gone. The team spotted and identified many animals on their journey. Of course, the hippos and the birds. Read, copy. Squawker. Uh, Spurring. But as they neared the border, the chances of seeing elephants became slimmer and slimmer. I mean, we spent two months seeing tracks of animals, but not really seeing wildlife. And you kind of start wondering the amount of effort you'll have to put in to see one, just one. And when hope was almost gone. Elephants. We have elephants in Angola. (laughs) 
he actually finally found them. This is amazing. This is really amazing. It's a symbol that connects our past to our potential future. Connection and diversity are the two pillars that hold our world together. That's what makes us different. That's the one special thing about us in the cosmos. Riding on the euphoria from encountering elephants, a few days later, the crew crossed the border over into Namibia. There were people washing clothes along the river, and large tracts of desert plowed into green circles being watered by massive commercial irrigation systems. Although Namibia has the highest population density along the river, the water only runs through 60 kilometers of the country before another border crossing into Botswana. That's where the river widens and widens until it begins spreading across the land like an enormous hand. That hand is the delta. And I can smell, I can smell delta now. Mm. Add another 10 white-faced duck, one yellow-billed stalk. For four months and 1,500 kilometers, the team traced the water from Angola through Namibia down to Botswana. We're not part of the water. We are now part of the system. We've been drinking this water for four months. Our atoms are literally this place. And rice and beans. Uh, the hippos were, you know, kind of understanding, podding up properly, not terrifying us, kind of, you know, kind of congratulating us. It's like, it's like our team cheering us as we cross the delta. As they made it to the edge of the delta, where the water evaporates into sand, the team fell into each other's arms in hugs, exhaustion and tears. Today was the fulfillment of a, of a dream. We dreamed this place for a long time. Now we are right here. It's in the place we're looking for. I think that expedition brought this vision that Angola is worth it, that as an Angolan, I have the responsibility to help protect what is mine and what is ours, what is everyone's. And that shifted completely the way that I perceive my career path, because I strongly believed my career path was international and abroad. And all of a sudden, I saw myself spending my whole life working in Angola, specifically on, in, in the Okavango. By the end of the expedition, the team had discovered 38 new species in Angola and 24 potential new species to science. They had logged over 30,000 geotagged wildlife sightings. 
we need data to explain and to describe, which was very important at the time because there was no data, uh, especially current data, modern data. I was so focused on that. And at the time, it was my goal to be a scientist, a practical scientist that gathers data. But it really showed me that there's so much you can do with data if you don't add action. And you know what governizes people to take action more than numbers? A good story. I think I've seen the documentary about 17 times um, by now, so I could probably narrate it myself. This is Gary Nell. He was the CEO of the National Geographic Society when Steve and Neil Gelinas released the documentary. You know, I can't take credit for being the person who found Steve Boys, but I think certainly when I did hear about this bigger dream and this bigger project, it absolutely um, inspired me as one that was a prototype for what National Geographic could be. This prototype Gary is talking about is the documentary Steve and Neil ended up making about the expedition. It's called Into the Okavango. This documentary became the perfect recipe for a National Geographic project. Science, storytelling, and adventure. It was nominated for an Emmy, and it screened at the Tribeca Film Festival. And the greater team won the Rolex National Geographic Explorer of the Year Award. As the documentary reached millions of viewers, suddenly, it wasn't just a ragtag team of explorers, scientists, and YA guides who wanted to protect the Okavango Delta. Wealthy conservationists, international donors, NGOs, and average viewers watching the movie on in-flight entertainment and Disney+, Plus, all felt moved to protect this place. The prestige and attention of the documentary even helped nudge U.S. Congress to pass the Delta Act, a bill committing to protect the wildlife in and around the Delta. Everyone has a personal interest to be there. Um, everyone wants a piece of the landscape for themselves, whatever that means, whether it is money, whether it is personal well-being, whether it is, um, you know, leaving a print or leaving a legacy. All this energy transformed Steve's $10,000 research expedition into a $16 million multinational conservation effort. National Geographic created a whole new project dedicated to conserving this wilderness, called the National Geographic Okavango Wilderness Project, now known as NGOWP. And this project has attracted more funding from National Geographic Society than any other project in their 150-year history. Steve became its leader, and I became the Angola country director. While I'm still in charge of our photo-trapping efforts, my primary role is guiding our relationship building with local communities. I'm the translator between local people's desires and their concerns with the project. They are not saying that they don't want you to work here or they, they're kind of, they have reservations, no. Um, they very much welcome you with both hands and they're aware that uh, the attention of the country, of the world, is on the project to work here and to implement their ideas. So everyone is watching and they are watching. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. The more I listen to the villagers' concerns, myths and traditions, 
the more conflicted I feel about how an outside organization can best protect this place. That's why I pay such close attention to Mukisi. We know the Mukisi. I'm sitting with Jose Vitanga, a 78-year-old elder who lived through the war in Tempwe, a town in eastern Angola. Mukisi is like a dragon. I mean, it lives in the water. You hear the noise it makes. Is there anyone who has actually seen Mukisi with their own eyes? One cannot see it with their own eyes. <laughs> so how do you know it exists? Because uh, of the miracles it performs, you will realize you are in his presence. There was once a group of children who were going to get circumcision done, and when they were put in the lake to bathe, they all got stuck there. And nowadays when one gets to that lake, even if using a canoe, you won't go past the middle of the lake. You have to offer something to be able to get out. Is it crazy to call a dragon swallowing a group of children a miracle? To me, it sounds like it belongs in the list of threats that the expedition team faced. An agitated hippo rising from the river. A fire blazing across the horizon. I think there is something here. Wisdom that is hundreds of years old that tells us exactly how we will protect this place. When the cameras stop rolling and the boats are stored away, how do Steve, Koki, Water, Vitanga, the villagers of Tempwe, and myself all come together? How do we protect this place for the future? This podcast will follow what happens when worlds come together and at times collide with the common goal of protecting a place. Next time, we go looking for the lost ghost elephants of Angola and find out why protecting them can be complicated. You're listening to Guardians of the River, a podcast about the quest to safeguard one of the world's most remote and wild lands. I'm your host, Kerlin Costa. This story was written and recorded by Kat Jaffe and House of Pod, in partnership with the National Geographic Okavango Wilderness Project. This podcast is funded through a National Geographic Storytelling Grant and the Wild Bird Trust. If you're new to podcasts, you can find a guide on how to listen to this show and support the project at wildbirdtrust.org. You can also find this podcast on Spotify, Google Play, Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to great audio. We owe an enormous thanks to Neil Jalinas and Kaya Answer for allowing us to use recordings from their documentary. Our fact checker is Amy Machado. Our producer is Juliette Luini. 
Our illustrator is Fernando Hugo Fernandes. Our audio editor is Jason Patton. We had story editing help from Rebecca Mendoza Nunziato. And our composer is Victor Gama, who is also the voice of José Vitanga. Sadly, José Vitanga passed away a few days after our interview, and we are so grateful to have had the chance to hear him speak. A big thank you to Geração 80 in Luanda. And thank you always to Dr. Steve Boyce and John Hilton of the Wild Bird Trust, who have sponsored and supported this production. And from me, Kerlin, moyo eno. <laughs>